If you have ever traveled to a place that you've known about, but maybe you have never been there before, it's interesting because you go there and you find things that you didn't really understand before. Uh, I remember going to Boston and, uh, you know, I had I knew about Boston. I knew basically where it was and I knew that, you know, about the Boston Tea Party and uh, I knew about Paul Revere and, uh, you know, the Red Sox and, you know, I, I knew a little bit about Boston and, and most of the pictures I had seen of Boston were in history books, old sketches of, you know, Paul Revere riding through the town or whatever and, and, and so it was neat when I was able to go there and actually see Boston, drive around town, walk around town, see some of the sights, drive around the outskirts of the town, and pretty soon I began to understand a lot better what Boston was really like, because before I just um, had ideas about it was li- what it was like, but since I had never been there, I didn't really have um, a correct understanding of what it was like. My, my mind kind of filled in the blanks, and they filled in the blanks wrong. Well, this is how it is for a lot of Christians in the Old Testament. They don't know what to do with it. It's, you know, it's big, it's scary, and and they know some things about the Old Testament, but they've never been there. They've never really lived there. They've never really studied it hard, and they've never really found out the answers to hard questions about the Old Testament. And what is amazing is that most Christians have very strong opinions about the Old Testament, though they have never studied it, which I find interesting. In most cases, people believe certain things about the Old Testament because other people told them and other people told them, but you rarely find a person who knows the answer to the question uh, when they say something like, oh, the Old Testament doesn't apply. And you ask them, well, how can you say that? They don't have a clue. They just say that. And what's happening is, is a lot of Christians, because they have these misconceptions, don't go to the Old Testament because they don't know what to do with it. I mean, they know that we aren't under law, whatever that means. They know that cursed is any man who hangs on a tree, whatever that means. But they don't really know what to do with the Old Testament. And so what we're doing in this series is trying to help free our mind of some of the misconceptions. And we are going to be dealing with things. I have people coming up after. Are you going to talk about this? Are you going to talk about this? I'm going to talk about most of the big issues. And all those questions that we asked you um, a couple weeks back that most of you thought, I never even thought of those before. We're going to try and answer those so that you can have uh, some comfortableness with the Old Testament. And so far, we have looked at the structure of the Old Testament. We've looked at how it's put together. We've looked at a basic chronology of the Old Testament and how the books fit into a timeline. And then we took some time to really address one very important misconception, and that is the misconception that some people think the Old Testament has, quote, been done away with. That um, it's no longer needed anymore. You know, a lot of people look at it as an old, uh, you know, historical document that, you know, had its purpose in its day. And, it, you know, it has a religion that's no longer functions and, and no longer pleases God. And, and all those things were in a different time in a different place. And we kind of carry it around so we can know some of the stories. But the real meat is in the new. That's how most Christians feel. Yet we all learned... The last time we were here, 
is that the Word of God is all inspired and living and active and important. It is all for our teaching, all for our reproof and correction and training and righteousness, so that all of us can be equipped for every good work. It gives us perseverance. It gives us encouragement. It gives us hope. It gives us examples of how to be and how not to be. It tells us about God. It tells us about His character. It tells about His past workings, His present workings, His future workings. It tells us how we can know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Old Testament. And all of these things and more are reasons why the Old Testament is so important. And to neglect it is to really cheat yourself. And so hopefully this morning, as we answer a few more misconceptions, you will begin to see some things you never saw before and maybe understand some things better than you did before. And the first misconception that I want to address is that the Old Testament is somehow insignificant. You know, like uh, some people believe that the New Testament is kind of truer, maybe. Um, you know, the, the Old Testament is the superseded by the New Testament testament. You heard people say things like that before, I'm sure. But the Old Testament is every bit the Word of God is the New Testament. The Old Testament is every bit as authoritative. And the Old Testament is, and some of you may be thinking to yourself, oh no. Every bit as applicable to your life as a Christian. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, so we're we're going to have to do the sacrificial system now? No. So we're under the law of Moses now? No. I'm not saying that. But did we not learn from 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture, directly speaking of the Old Testament, is inspired, God-breathed? And what does that mean? It is God-breathed. Well, you remember what happened when God breathed into Adam, right? When God breathed into Adam, what happened? He breathed into Adam the breath of life and man, man became a living being. Well, he did the same thing to his word, didn't he? Sure he did. And what does Hebrews 4.12 say? It says the word of God is living, zoe, the word we get zoo from, it is active, energase, the word we get energy from. It is a living, active book. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is piercing. It is able to judge. It does things. Why did Isaiah says, My word, which goes forth from my mouth, will not come back void, but it will accomplish all that I intend for it to accomplish. God's word is living and it is active. And that's why Timothy goes on in 2 Timothy 3 to say it is good for teaching you and reproving you and correcting you and training you in righteousness. Your righteousness. So that you may be adequate and equipped for every good work. So the Old Testament is not insignificant. We learn from Jesus that heaven and earth would pass away before one jot or tittle would pass away from the law. So be assured that the Old Testament is not a less significant testament. So instead of saying the Old Testament doesn't apply and contradict the clear teaching of the New Testament, why don't you just say, I know it applies, but I don't know how? And hopefully we will answer that question. 
But that would be a more accurate statement. Now, now that we understand that it is not insignificant, okay, it's, it's significant. We may not know how to apply it yet and what to do with all that stuff and what that means it's, it's significant. And we're going to get to that in the weeks to come. But just know that it's just as significant and just as applicable to your life as a Christian as the New Testament. Keep that in your mind. Now, the second misconception is the erroneous view that in the Old Testament, people were saved by works, and in the New Testament, we're now saved by grace. And there are a lot of things that contribute to this. You hear things like, oh, well, God was, you know, the God of wrath in the Old Testament. He is the God of grace in the New Testament. Or you, uh, you know, are reading through the New Testament and you see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. Men who are just Old Testament fanatics and they're keeping every little rule and every little regulation and, and adding some to it and keeping those two. And yet Jesus condemns them. He condemns them as not going to heaven. And we can begin to think when we see that, well, maybe things have changed. You know, you go to the writings of Paul, like in Romans, and you keep hearing him say things like, you know, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, Romans 3.20. And a lot of times, because we're, we're logical creatures, I mean, some are more logical than others, but we're logical creatures, and some of us begin to think in our mind, well... Things have changed because now Paul is refuting salvation by works. And we can assume that in the Old Testament, salvation was by works. But now that Christ has come, it's by grace. But what we must understand is that Paul is not saying salvation is now by grace when before it was by works. What happened was, is the Jews misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures and they falsely taught salvation was by works. And the reason Paul brings it up is to refute the false doctrine that salvation was by works when it's not. And so he is not saying it used to be by works, but now it's not. He's refuting it and saying it's always been by grace. It's always been by faith. And that's how anyone at any time has ever been saved. And what is interesting is how he proves that. Turn to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. And this is amazing. You would think that if Paul was saying, well... Let me tell you the new way of salvation, salvation by grace as opposed to the old way by works, that he would instantly go to the New Testament, pick out some New Testament figures or New Testament things and support from the New Testament that salvation is by grace through faith alone. But what's interesting is he goes to the Old Testament and picks two of the most prominent Old Testament figures to support the doctrine of grace alone and faith alone as the only means of salvation. He picks Abraham, the father of the nation Israel, and David, king of Israel. And so if you're in Romans 4, I just want to skip around and just point out a few verses to you. The first is verses 2 and 3. 
Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word credited means imputed to or reckoned to or given to the account of. And notice, Abraham was justified not by works, but he believed God, another word for faith, and his belief brought righteousness which was given to him by God. Not It did not come from himself. Look at verses 6 and 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits, there's the word again, righteousness, apart from works. And then he quotes a psalm, Blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Paul says that when David wrote about men being forgiven by the Lord, that David was saying that God was crediting to them righteousness, imputing to them righteousness apart from works. Forgiveness is to erase your sins so that you are just or righteous before God. And all of that is by grace, not a result of works. And Abraham and David both knew and understood this in the Old Testament. And so what Paul is arguing for here is not for a new way of salvation. He's arguing for the same way that's always been. Now that radically should adjust your mind when you're reading books like Romans. He is not presenting a new way of salvation. He is presenting the old way again. Look down in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised Jews or on the uncircumcised also Gentiles? For we say faith was credited or reckoned or imputed to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. This is a brilliant argument here. Because the Jews were so concerned about circumcision that if you weren't circumcised, you couldn't be saved. And so what Paul does is he goes to the very father of the nation and he says, may may I remind you that Abraham believed God. It was credited to him or reckoned to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. Abraham is one of the few examples of believer's circumcision. First you believe and then you're circumcised, kind of like believer's baptism. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham lived in around 2000 B.C. Moses didn't write the law until, you know, 1400 B.C. So what does that mean? Not only did Abraham receive the righteousness of God... By faith, he received it by faith before circumcision and before the law was even given. That is a double brilliant argument. 
And it makes it very clear that faith has never been by works. Faith and salvation have always been linked together. Grace brings the message. People believe in the message. And that faith is what saves them, not the works. And that's how it's always been. And that's how it will always be. And things have never changed. But what other, there's another misconception that flows from this. So men aren't saved by works. But if you think they're saved by works... Because you, you, you're reading your Bible and you, you see all this judgment if you don't obey. You begin to think, well, maybe, maybe they were obeying because they wanted to be saved. Maybe that's why they believed and why they obeyed. Because they were wanting to be saved. Well, it's true that they believed, some of them, and they obeyed. But Paul makes it very clear that Abraham was justified and he was made righteous by faith alone, apart from circumcision and apart from the works of the law. And we have to answer this question because this is going to come into play later. What is the motivation for obedience in the Old Testament? Why were those Old Testament saints obeying? Was it different than the New Testament? Well, we are going to discover... The motivation is exactly the same and has not changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The proper motivation for obedience is always love for the Lord. And I want to show you that in some detail. And I want to show you God's grace. And this will come into play as we look at other things. What often happens is, is let's say you're, you know, you want to read the Old Testament and, you know, you feel convicted because I preached a, you know, a sermon on the Old Testament. So you're going to go read something. So you plop open the book of, you know, Leviticus or Deuteronomy and you start plowing through there. And it says, don't do this and do do this and don't do this and do do this and don't do this and do do this. And you're just thinking, oh, man, this is boring. This is a drag and this is going to kill me. What is all this? You know, they, and then you read things like when they didn't obey, God <laughs> took off their heads, you know, serpents and fire and earth swallowing them up and, and thinking, man, you know, maybe, maybe they had to obey then and they didn't obey then. Judgment. And it appears to us that obedience is the means of salvation. Because only those who obey escape. And this is partially true. Salvation does produce obedience. And disobedience does produce judgment unless you are forgiven by grace. Now think about this with me. Just think back. We're going to go back in time and I'm going to remind you of things you all know about. I want you to think about it in a different light. Before Moses, there was no law. No formal law. If you read the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, often referred to as the law, 
There's hardly any laws in the book of Genesis. Just a couple. What are those 50 chapters in Genesis? I'll tell you what they are. They are grace. They are the gospel of grace in the Old Testament. Think about it. God creates a perfect man and a perfect woman, puts them in a perfect environment, gives them one, one, one regulation, perfect, and says, there. So what do they do? They rebel against him. So God says, okay, I told you you're going to die when you rebelled. <laughs> to hell you go. Is that what happens? No. He kills animals, innocent animals, in substitution and clothe them with the skins of these innocent animals by grace. And then he promises them a deliverer. And they have a couple sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain and Abel are offering sacrifice, and Cain's heart isn't right. He comes to the Lord, and God even reasons with him, you know, Cain, come on, do it the right way. And then later on, Cain kills his brother. And God says, okay, that's it. And he strikes Cain down? No. He says, Cain, there's going to be some consequence here, but I'm going to protect you. And Cain's people are not only protected, they flourish. That is grace. Think of how God called Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham. He gave a miraculous child to Abraham. He spared Abraham's nephew, Lot, from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And think of how his son, Isaac, the promised child, gave birth to twins. And one of those twins had 12 sons. And those 12 sons would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons he would providentially put into position so he could save the whole clan of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from extinction. That is grace. And that's what the whole book of Genesis is about. The grace of God. And the same thing is true in Exodus. I mean, think about Exodus. Is the book of Exodus a bunch of laws? Oh, sure, there's a couple little sections in Exodus. But the whole thing is about God's redeeming love. How he loved this people who wasn't even his own people yet. How he loved these people unconditionally, even though they were stiff-necked and stubborn and obstinate in his estimation. And he... Listen to them as they cried out. They were in slavery. They were being cruelly oppressed and treated. And what does he do? He raises up a man. And that man is his instrument to execute these plagues. And the final plague being the death of the firstborn sons. And it is the death of the firstborn sons that finally breaks the camel's back, so to speak. And Pharaoh allows the people of, of Israel to leave the promised land. And God makes the Israelites so loathsome in the sight of the Egyptians that the Egyptians just give them all their treasure. So they plunder the Egyptians on their way out. All by grace. And isn't that what we have in the New Testament? God sacrifices his firstborn son that we might be redeemed from bondage to sin and Satan. Exactly the same. And what happened when Israel left Egypt? They went to the sea. And they camped there at the sea. They had just seen 
power after power after power of God displayed. They've seen the death of the firstborn. They've plundered the Egyptians. They've gone out. They're camped by the sea. And then Pharaoh decides to come back and get a little revenge. And they all stand firm and trust in God and wait for his salvation. <laughs> Let me remind you of what they said in Exodus 14, 11, and 12. Then they said to Moses... It is because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. If it was me and I was God, they would be dust. God's doing miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they accuse God. Accuse Moses of bringing them out in the wilderness to slay them? Can you believe that? So what did God do? Well, he rained fire and brimstone down on them and he wiped them out. No, he extended grace. Relax, I'll part the sea. You walk through the sea and be saved. And when Pharaoh's army comes, I will destroy all them so you can sleep at night. That's all grace. So they marched to Sinai where they, God gave them food from heaven. That was grace. He made it so they never got sick. That was grace. He made it so their clothes wouldn't wear out. That was grace and gave them water out of rocks. And that was grace. God didn't just abandon them in the wilderness and say, okay, I got you this far, take it away. Figure it out. Turn to Exodus 19. Exodus chapter 19. Look at verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the sons of Israel. See, Israel isn't a nation yet. And this is God's invitation. How would you like to believe in me? How would you like to trust in me? How would you like to follow me? And I will take care of you if you are willing to do that. He, he offers to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Well, let me remind you. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter, speaking of Christians, says, But you are a cho chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see any parallels there? They're identical. 
Nothing has changed. God is still the God of redemption who calls for himself people out of darkness into light so that he may bless them and that they may serve him out of love. And what did God ask the Jews to do? To obey him, to show their love to him. Look at Exodus 19.8. Exodus 19.8 says, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Notice, they have just made a commitment, a corporate commitment as a people to have God be their only God and they be his only people. And here, all the people are committing themselves to the Lord. And look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now what's interesting here is God says, Moses, for your benefit... And for the benefit of the people, I am actually going to make a physical manifestation of myself and I am going to speak to you so that they know you are my man. That is an act of grace. That is an act of grace. And so in verses 10 through 25, God tells Moses to consecrate the people, that they are to be holy before he comes and meets with them. The same thing that happens in the New Testament, confess your sins. Before you boldly approach the throne of grace, make sure you have sin dealt with in your life before you come to God to worship Him. Same thing. Get your life together before you meet me tomorrow, and I will come down and I will speak to you. I will speak to you. Look at Exodus 20, 1 through 6. Now remember, God is speaking directly to the people from the mountain so that all of them are hearing with their ears the very voice of God, and all of them are seeing with their eyes this incredible manifestation of God in this huge cloud and fire. All of them are able to see and hear. People, this is grace. This is God's gracious condescension to come down and convince them utterly that He is God and what His Word is. And he did this all by grace, and they didn't deserve it. They were the rebellious and stiff-necked people. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice, the first thing he mentions is, I am your God. Why does he say that? Because in the preceding chapter, they committed themselves to having God be their God. The second thing God mentions is what? That he delivered them out of Egypt. He mentions and references his greatest act of grace and love towards them in redeeming them from slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Why does he say that? Because they already made a commitment to have God be their God. And he's just reminding them, you've committed to me. You have a relationship with me. So don't bring anybody else into the picture because that would be spiritual harlotry and adultery. Don't do that. 
because you have already committed yourselves to me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. How do they hate him? By those worshiping idols. Worshiping other gods is an act of hatred towards God. Now notice what he says in verse 6. But showing loving kindness or grace or mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice the order here. Very important. Love me and keep my commandments. First, you make a commitment to God to love God and you express your love to God by keeping his commandments. That is so critical. They commit to love God and to keep his commandments as an outward response of their love. See, if God just said, I want you to love me and he didn't tell them how, how would they love him? They wouldn't know how. So it was an act of grace for God not only to say, will you be my people? Yes. Will you love me? Yes. And this is how. By keeping my commandments. First, there is a relationship of love. Then there is the demonstration of the love by obedience. And the rest of the book of Exodus, the rest of the book of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of Numbers is God graciously giving the people of Israel explicit ways to show love to him since they have a relationship with him and they have a covenant with him and have committed themselves to him. And he will take care of them. They build the tabernacle. He shows them the sacrificial system, how to operate it, all those laws. This is amazing grace. Then we get to Numbers chapter 11. Turn there. I wonder how they ever made it through this book. And in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. The people complained and grumble against God. And so God strikes some of them dead, but has grace and mercy towards all the other undeserving sinners. Then Moses complains to God. And God extends grace to Moses. Then the people complain about not having meat. So God extends grace to them and gives them meat. And some of them are greedy and are stuffing it in their face and not giving thanks. So he strikes them dead. But most of the undeserving, complaining grumblers, he spares by his grace. Then... Miriam and Aaron decide to get in on the complaint wagon. And here, there's a little sibling rivalry. You know, well, you know, our brother Moses, I mean, you know, we know that, you know, God did appear to him and everything, but, you know, we kind of like to have our own staff. 
and do our own miracles. I mean, we'd like to make water come out of the rock. I mean, you know, I mean, he's hogging all the power here. And it seems that Miriam was the one probably leading the charge to usurp the power from Moses, even though they both came. And so God was gracious and he actually came down and spoke directly to Miriam and Aaron. And to teach Miriam a lesson, he struck her with leprosy. And Moses interceded and God graciously healed her. And then God says, okay, now we're ready to enter the promised land. We are going to go into the promised land. It's going to be such a great place. I want you to know this is the land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give it to you. I promise I'm going to give it to you. You saw what I did with the Egyptians. I'm going to give it to you. I want you to send spies in there. I want you to just just check out the abundance of the land. Come back. Tell all the people what they're going to get, and we'll go in and get it. So all the spies go in. And only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, actually believe the word of the Lord. The other ten rebel against the word of the Lord. And what happens? They go to the people. And they get them all frothed up. Look at Numbers 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, I mean, is this the favorite wine of the Israelites? Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones would become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt and go against God's leader. I mean, he just gave them an object lesson with Miriam. I'm sure everybody in the council, did you hear what happened to Miriam? She challenged Moses' leadership, and she's just turned into a leper. And now they're all saying, let's get rid of these leaders. Let's go back to slavery. Again, if I was God, they would have been dust there. But what's amazing is God extends more grace to them. Look at verse 20. Moses intercedes for the people. Look what, the, look what God said. Verse 20 of Numbers 14. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. What is that? God's saying, listen, I'm not going to destroy them right now. But I'll tell you this. My glory, my holiness will be preserved because every one of those grumblers will not enter the land. I'll let them live this generation, but they aren't going to enter the land. I'll let their children enter. And so even though during the 40 years that whole generation dropped dead in the wilderness, God graciously preserved the entire nation. They went in stronger than when they left Egypt. And they entered into this beautiful promised land with all developed by the heathen nations so they could just come in and just receive the fat of the land. And right before they enter the land, God knows that they're going to be 
no longer in one big group. They're going to divide up. They're going to have different tribes. They're going to have towns and cities. And they're going to need government. And so he gives them graciously the book of Deuteronomy. So that they can know how to apply his law. And how to apply the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to all the different issues of life. And in Deuteronomy chapter... It's so 1 through 4. You need to read it sometime. It's great. Uh, Deuteronomy's chapter 1 through 4 are just a synopsis of all the things that happened to Israel. It's kind of the Old Testament crushed into four chapters. Another is Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. You go there and read it, or Acts 5, or whatever it is. And it's just great um, to, to see all the things that God did. But I want to just point out some things. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy 1. And look at verses 29 and 30 and 31. He, he is talking about Numbers 13 and verse 26 of how the people refused to believe and rebelled against the God and they didn't enter and all that stuff and they grumbled. But look at verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And notice this comment here in verse 31. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. What is that? That is tender, nurturing care. He's saying you are like this little toddler, a son, that the father is just carrying the whole weight of him. And he has carried you all the way until you have gotten here. That is grace. That is grace. Look at Deuteronomy 4. After he summarizes all the things that happened to them, and then he gets to chapter 4 as he's starting to polish things up. He says, look at, look at 4, verse 4. He says, But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. He didn't lose a one. That is grace. Look at verse 8. Or what nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as the whole law, which I am setting before you today? And the implied answer is none. There is no law based on love. Love for God and love for one's neighbor that is perfectly just and perfectly holy and perfectly fair. There isn't a law like that. No one had a law like that. No one. This is grace. And finally, look at Deuteronomy 4.29. This is so great. But from there... Now, he's talking about, he says, you know, don't, don't forget the Lord. Um, Moses predicts that, that they will forget the Lord. They will rebel against him. They will be taken captive to, into foreign lands. The nation of Israel will be utterly destroyed and spread out all over the place, which happened. But look at the promise here. This is a prediction. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. He says, you're going to get all conquered. You're going to get spread all out all over the place because of your sin and rebellion against me. But look at verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, 
You will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. God will never, cannot ever break his promise. He will bring you back because he is a compassionate God who cannot lie. And he has promised that you will be his people in this land serving him. This is marvelous and the infinite and the matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. And what's great about this is what it says in verse 32. Here, Moses is going to chronicle all the great acts of God's grace. He says in verse 32, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth. Just a side note here, he did not climb out of primordial slime. And inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything anything been heard like it? And the implied answer is no and no. No one has ever done anything like this. And no one has ever even heard of anything like this. Verse 33. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you have heard it and survived? Implied answer? No. Verse 34. Or has... A God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials and signs and wonders and war and mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by the great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? No. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. That is grace. Verse 36. Out of all the the heavens, he lets you hear his voice to discipline you. You know, you wonder why God came down to the mountain, did the big fire thing and the smoke thing and made the earth tremble when he spoke to him, the Ten Commandments. It's to terrorize them for their own good. So they would fear God. And not treat him flippantly. So that they would keep his commandments so he could bless them utterly. Verse 37, because he loved you. He loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below and there is no other. He, he, is, he is arguing here, he summarized the entire history of Israel and their redemption from Egypt in these first four chapters. He ends with a condensed section showing the great acts of God's grace on their behalf before, before he restates the Decalogue. And look at what he says in verse 40. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long in the land land which the Lord your God is giving you for a time. 
Why did God, Israel, want to obey? Out of love for him because of his gracious acts on their behalf. Does that sound familiar? 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. And the motive for obeying in the Old Testament is exactly the same as the motive for obeying in the New. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. In John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, that is by keeping my commandments, will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You're saying, well, he hadn't died yet. That's still Old Testament. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Salvation has always been by grace. The motivation for obedience has always been grace. And it has never changed. So, I hope you clearly see the Old Testament is not the insignificant testament. You may not know how it applies yet, but we're going to get there. But no, it's not insignificant. Secondly, I hope you are convinced that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone. It has never changed. Third, I hope you see that God wants you to obey Him, not to be saved, but because you are saved and you want to show love and gratitude. I mean, when you love somebody, is, is it a burden to love them? You know, I don't think to myself, oh, you know, I'm going to go buy my wife some flowers. <laughs> Would that be love? Or, you know, my wife says, hey, you know, this knob fell off the counter. You know, well, I don't want to do it. <laughs> but I'll do it. It's, it's disrupting my time. No. When you love somebody, you want to serve them. That's why the psalmist says, I run the way of your commandments out of love. I hope you are all motivated to study the Old Testament. I hope you are all motivated to see God's grace. The Old Testament is not a book about men. It is a book about God. It is not a history. It is a demonstration of God's grace. And all the way through, it doesn't matter where you are, God's redemption, His grace, His mercy, His compassion are just there. All over the place. And we need to learn that our God is that kind of God. Sure, He is a God of judgment too. Sure, He is a holy God. But when you see how He acts towards undeserving sinners over and over again, it will change the entire way of how you see the Old Testament. God is the Lord and He changes not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the great privilege of being able to come to this place and worship you in spirit and truth. We thank you, Father, because you are such a good God. You are so merciful to show us story after story and example after example of how you are so long-suffering and patient with undeserving sinners. We praise you for that. 
And Father, when we read the Hebrew scriptures, when we read the Old Testament, may we be ever so thankful. May we constantly be joyful in our hearts. May we rejoice in the great work you have done for so many in the past and that we know you will do in the future. And Father, may we love you and show our love to you by keeping your commandments because there is no other way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.